Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. All right, good morning. Is it a good morning? I hope so. Uh, as Pastor Frank said at the start of the service, um, it seems like whoever I ask these days, how are you, the most common word I hear is tired. And that may be true of our bodies, maybe even our minds. But there is a promise held out for us in Scripture that if we are in Christ, rivers of living water flow out of us. That if we guard our hearts, out of that heart is the wellspring of life itself. That we are raised with Christ to a newness of life. So that even though our outward lives are wasting away, inwardly we are being made new every day. This is a truth we have to embrace. Because if we lose sight of that, this world will beat the living tar out of us and leave us as empty shells of human beings. That's all we'll have left. But it's not just nice words. It's true that in Christ, something real and living, forceful, vital, emanates from out of us. And I I hope that is a truth you will cling to. It's not my sermon for today, but um, I'm tired of saying I'm tired. And I, I, I want to change the way I respond when someone asks me how I am. Because I'm not just a body. I'm a spirit, too. There's a soul inside of me that is in the hands of God. I want to do a two-part short series this week and next week, exploring the central question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? This word which we throw around quite often, disciple, what is it? What is at the heart of it? Because this is a question that the, the pastors in the Thrive Network have been throwing back and forth for a while. Like, what does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to be a disciple? Is the church accomplishing its mission to be a place where disciple-making happens? It's clear that the church is losing ground in the culture, and we as an organized religion, as an institution, no longer have the voice we once had or the influence we once enjoyed. We're not taken very seriously. But at the heart of that is the problem, quite possibly, that the church is producing churchgoers, but not necessarily disciples of the living Christ. So that when people encounter us, the main difference often between us and them is how we spend the first few hours of Sunday morning and what makes us feel bad. But aside from that, there may not be a substantive difference in the way our lives are built Versus everyone else's. And that leaves people wondering, what's the big deal about the good news of Jesus? If the distinction between those who are in it and those who are not is so subtle, would I really throw my lot in with this God? I think it's a vital question. What does it mean to be a disciple of the living Christ? When you hear that word disciple or discipleship, what images... Is that something bad happening over there? Okay, sorry. Um, What images, what ideas come to your mind? Would you pause and think about that? When I ask you, hey, are are you involved in discipleship? Where does your mind naturally take you? See, for me growing up, and I'm sure you've heard this from pulpits before, For me, the association of the word discipleship was, oh, those are the dudes at church who really are into it. Like, they really like this stuff. They take it very seriously. And in fact, when it comes to this particular measure, they're way ahead of me. They're sort of like the Navy SEALs of the Christian world. They're not just soldiers. They're like those super soldiers. So I, I often thought of disciple or discipleship as a program of the church meant for focused special training, and thereby it is also a subset of people in the church who have a different attitude towards the faith. 
And so for many years, I was content to say, yeah, someday I might be a disciple, but for now, I'm just a Christian. What's interesting is that throughout the, the New Testament, the Bible itself does not seem to make much of a distinction between the word disciple and believer or disciple and Christian. And neither should we. Because the truth is, those words all ought to be interchangeable. They should point to the same thing. I want to take a look at Matthew 28. And I want to look at verses 16 to 20 over the next couple weeks and unpack it for us. These verses contain what we commonly call the Great Commission. It is this, this, word, this, this word that Jesus gave his closest disciples sending them out or commissioning them on their life's work, what their whole lives were meant to be about. And the passage begins here in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you're paying attention, first thing you see, there's 11. I thought there were 12 of these dudes. It's a sobering reminder that not everyone who starts this journey with Jesus finishes it. I've had friends along the way who were burning hot for Christ and are no longer around. Instead of burning brighter, they burned out. They faded away. I don't say that as an accusation. I say that as a sobering reminder that this thing is not a one and done deal. It is a way of living, a journey, a path of life, which has to be renewed just like everything. They started as 12, but now 11. One of them has already died, took his own life. And these 11 go to a, a mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Because before he died, he had said several times, Look, guys, I'm leaving you. They're going to kill me. But I'm going to rise again. They're like, this has got to be symbolic. Nobody talks like this. But he said afterwards, I'm going to go to this mountain. Meet me there. And they were very confused and emotionally distraught after the death of Jesus. When they heard rumors he had risen, they said, Well, maybe we should go to that mountain where he told us to meet him. So there was a particular mountain in Galilee. And they went there and they were astounded to find him. And yet some people still doubted with the living flesh and blood Christ in front of them. Raised from the dead, they were like, can we even trust our own eyes? This is the power of doubt. We say if you could just see, if you just show up, be here in the flesh and blood. We are underestimating the power of human doubt. Because even if you see it, you doubt your own eyes sometimes. The risen Christ, who they watched die and be buried, is standing in front of them now, and they rightfully then have a response of worship. It says they saw him, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus begins to clearly establish his authority over everything. It's easier to accept the man who says, listen, God, the living God, has given me authority over everything. And when you see that he has beaten death, it's easier to receive a word like that. So they worship him. And that's important for what comes next. He's saying, I'm not just saying this as your friend and your teacher. You see me differently now, don't you? Because not everybody who has made good messages and done great things has come out of a grave, has beaten death. I am not just another man. I am God in the flesh. And what I'm about to say to you next comes not just from your teacher and your friend, but from God himself. This is the most important thing you can be sent out to do for the rest of your lives. That's the setup. And then these words follow. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We call this the Great Commission. And a commission is a sending out on a mission with a purpose under authority. That's what a commissioning is. 
And so we have commissionings in the military, in government. There's all kinds of commissionings in this world. It is someone being appointed to a task with authority, under authority, and with resources and power to get the job done. That's us. It's not just the 11 who have gathered with the risen Jesus, but it's us. And the central mission he gives them is just one thing, one verb. It is to make disciples. That is it. The, the purpose of their whole lives, it's not, to, it's not just to create clean water or to make people feel better or to do this or that or whatever other great cause. They are all reflective of making disciples. But the core mission of the church, of every Christian, is to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and to make disciples of others wherever we go. This is the central mission. And if we lose sight of that, we cease to be the church. We will be a, another nonprofit agency, a charity, a whatever, a club, but we will cease to be the church the moment we cease to make disciples. This is what we as pastors have been discussing for nearly half a year. Is that happening at our churches? Are we faithfully doing that? Is that what we are producing in the churches that we lead? Don't, don't be too depressed. The answer isn't no way. It's yes, but there's a lot that we need to grow in. And as I thought about that, I realized it's also my central calling and my central mission. It's not just to hold together an organization. It is to be a disciple maker and to be a disciple myself. What's interesting is that when Jesus says make disciples, he breaks it down into two key activities. And they're kind of surprising. He says, baptize and teach. Teach is kind of self-evident. I, I get that. When you're discipling someone, even in Kung Fu or Taekwondo, like, you have to teach them how to do this stuff. So there's discipling that way. But why baptize? Of all the things that he could have said to, to anchor what it means to be a disciple or to make disciples, why is baptizing one of those two things? So I want to unpack that part of it for us this morning, and then I want to explore the teaching thing next Sunday. Fair? Fasten your seatbelts, hang on with me. What does baptism mean? And the first thing I want to point out is that baptism means that we have union with Jesus. Union was a very polite word in the old days for sex. <laughs> That's a pretty powerful word. When you hear union, don't just think, oh, union, it's like a nice theological term. We're talking about the deepest level of connecting with another being. Joining together, coupling. That's why you would say, have you engaged in matrimonial union? Conjugal union. It's that kind of word, that depth of intimacy is what we're talking about here. In Romans 6, verses 3 to 4, Paul writes this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, joined with him in his death, united with him in death, and we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's a ton of churchy language, so let me just break that down in simple language. We don't just benefit from the death and resurrection of Jesus, but as we're baptized, we're joined with him in those things so that it's not just like he did it in honor of us or on behalf of us, but we together with him really died and really rose to life. This is not a vicarious, symbolic thing. It's not a dedication of a song on the radio. It is living that song together with him. When we are baptized, what that symbolizes, what it points to, is that when Jesus died, we died with him. Something profound in us, the old self that rejected God, that embraced sin, that part of us that only wanted that, has died. And actively, we put that to death again and again. We say, that part of me is dead. It doesn't exist. 
I proclaim it to no longer be the essence of me that walks on this planet. There is something that has died in me, and in its place, something new has come to life. So that just as Jesus emerged from death out of that grave, I walked out of that grave with Him. I was joined with Him in that experience. It wasn't just a gift given to me. It was an experience I was united with Him. I joined with Him in this very thing. So to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus means at our baptism we acknowledge this, something in me died and a new thing rose up and came to life in its place. Throughout this message, I'll ask a few questions that I don't want you to answer out loud or point to anyone, but they're meant for you to question, does this describe me? Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? Has something in your old nature died? I'm not just talking about you constantly stuffing it down out of discipline and rigor, but something in you that once was raging, that wanted so badly to be set free, it's dead now. Anger, lust, selfishness, greed, vindictiveness, unforgiveness, all these raging fires that once burned in us and had no hesitation, no control. I just gave myself over to these things. And I didn't want to hear God or His people say anything to my face about it. I wanted to be free to live how I wanted to live. That's all I had once. Is that part of you dead and dying right now? Not because you're trying so hard, but because God Himself, in joining you with the death of Jesus, something in you was put to death. And then, consequently, as He walked out of that grave alive... Did something that once was dead in you come to life? John 7.38 says, If you believe in me, this is the words of Jesus, then out of that person will flow rivers of living water. That's a beautiful image. That in Christ, it's not just like you're constantly going, come on, stop it, try to be different, do better. It's not just you reshaping yourself, but somehow something in you that was dead is living now. So many people whose outward lives are dead, it's because their inward lives are also dead. And this new thing comes to life that wasn't there before. Are you experiencing that? Have you experienced it? Is your Christian experience simply the discipline and the rigor of how you train yourself to be? Or is there something foreign to you, a newness inside of you that is coming to life on a regular basis? Are you experiencing this? Is the good that you do for others more than you in the flesh being kind and loving and generous? Is, do you sense that there is God in you out of which all this goodness flows? You say to yourself on a regular basis, I'm not this good. I'm not this kind. I don't care this much about people. But God has deposited a thing in me that is coming to life and I can't quite explain it. It's more than me trying to be better. I'm different inside. There's something new and living that once was dead and missing. When we're baptized, the truth that that points to is that we were united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's why at our church, and I think historically throughout most of the church's history, people baptized through immersion. Now, there's a proper way in in church cultures where they wear fancy dresses and nice suits. They don't want to get all those things ruined. So there's sprinkling and there's um, pouring. Those are legitimate forms of baptism, but the way we choose to do it, and we believe honors Scripture and the biblical and church tradition, is we dunk you all the way under. You You can't wear clothing that you can't get wet because you're going under. And... For those I'm closer to, I I tell them ahead of time, I'm going to hold you under for a little while. Hold your breath. Because that, that physical experience, that ceremony of baptism, the way we do it here, 
is meant to give you a spiritual truth in, in the flesh, embodied in the flesh. That experience of what it felt like to be baptized is meant to be a constant remembrance of something. That's why we don't do Zoom weddings. You've got to be there, walk down the aisle, actually hand the flowers over, even if during COVID there were no guests. At least a bridal party took tests and showed up and isolated, right? Because you don't do weddings virtual. There are certain things that you have to embody in the flesh and walk through it, physically experience it, because that physicality becomes coded in your memory and is part of what walks with you through the whole of your life. We immerse you because in that going under the surface of the water, it's the symbolism of death and burial. You're not supposed to stay down there. If you do, you're going to actually die. If we, if we actually sat on you, you're not coming back up. And under that water, the thought must be, this is what it is to be dead. To be submerged under the surface, craving to come out, to be alive, to draw breath, and not able to do it. This is death, and something in me has been put to death by the power of God. And as we break out of the surface of that water, draw in that breath, and there's a smile on our face, everyone's cheering. The good news that we're celebrating that moment is that death is not the end of my story. It doesn't have to be the end of anyone's story. I am sucking in that air and I am breathing again. And it's like breaking the surface. Coming out of the grave. Not as a zombie walking dead, but as a new living being. And we do this physically because for the rest of your earthly life, you're meant to remember that day and the feelings, the physicality of it as a pointer to this spiritual truth that I was joined with Jesus in the act of dying and rising again. I don't ever want this to be something I produce through my hard effort, my discipline, my rigor, my goodness, my morality, my generosity. I'm not that much. But something powerful happened to me. We begin in discipleship with baptism because it celebrates something done to me and for me, not by me. You can't be a Christian by making yourself a Christian. You can only be a Christian by becoming one through the work of Christ in you. And then what you do matters. You take that first part away, what baptism symbolizes, it doesn't matter how you spend the rest of your life, really. It matters, but not as much as you think. Baptism itself doesn't create this union. It reminds us of it. A good parallel is a wedding ring, or the wedding itself. The ring itself doesn't make us married. That's good news, because I lost mine. As you can see, I don't have one right now, because I don't know where it is. I hardly ever take it off, but for some, one day I looked down, I'm like, oh, look at that. It's not there. I don't, what happened? So I don't know if my, I lost weight and it fell off in my sleep or something, but I have yet to go out and buy a new one. Thank God the ring doesn't make me married. Sorry, Jeannie. But I've been still very married to her without the ring. The ring reminds me of something. It reminds me of a day when I stood next to a pastor and watched her walk down the aisle towards me. The physicality, the remembrance of that day, and the promise we were making, that's what the ring symbolizes. And when I did have it, I would twist it around on my finger, I would touch it every day. It served as a reminder to me of a deeper truth that has to be renewed every single day. Yes, the ring and the ceremony was a one and done event in my history, but my marriage is an everyday reality that has to be renewed. And the ring was a reminder to me that I am still very much the man who stood at that altar made those promises. She is still very much the woman that I said yes to. And the same holds true for our faith. That's why we baptize the way we baptize. Baptism doesn't make you anything. Being wet doesn't produce anything spiritual, but it reminds us of a great thing which God has done. So let me ask you, is Jesus just the figurehead of your religion? Or are you bound to Him the way a husband is bound to a wife? The way two criminals are bound to each other when they throw in their lot with one another. If we get arrested, I'm your accomplice. We're both going to jail. There's not just you and me. There's us together. Is this how you see your relationship with Christ? You don't just do things for me. I'm in it with you every step of the way. You bound me to yourself. And in baptism, I celebrate that that happened. Are you with me so far? 
There's a second thing that baptism points us to, and that is submission to God's authority. Now, authority is a, it's a uh, trigger word today, and I understand that for good reason, especially in the church. Authority is a trigger word. Suspend judgment until you hear me out. When Jesus first commanded his disciples to make other disciples, he established baptism as a necessary step. Yes, there are certain benefits, there are certain meaningful symbolisms, but undergirding all of that was simply this. He told us this is important to him, and it's important to us. Have you ever been in a, a back-and-forth argument with your older children and just wanted to go, Shut I said so, that's why, that's it. Because it makes me happy when you do it this way, just do it. And there are times when you just want to go, do I have no authority left? Do I have to sell everything to you? Then am I actually your leader in any way? Do you just draw benefit? Think about it this way. If God has to justify every command, aren't you God? Because you only follow the ones that make sense to you. You only do what your heart tells you is good to do. And if God says this and you're like, I don't agree with that, then you're going to go another way. Aren't you then God? Is God not rendered irrelevant in your existence? If God has to agree with you, you are God. The very essence, the definition of God is that His authority stands above ours. That's why He is God. And if it weren't that way, he would be a waste of our time, wouldn't he? As much as if I said, I'm going to start a cult and I want to be your God, you'd all be like, let's go to ICC, let's get out of this place. That dude's crazy. Because who am I? I'm no one. If I try to exert authority over you, I'm just another slob like one of you. Where do I get off trying to exercise authority? But God himself has the right to say to us, I just said so. This, this is what I want from you. And that by itself should be enough. Thankfully, he's a good father. He doesn't ever just leave it there. He does tell us why it's good for us. He gives us reasons for things. But even if he didn't, even if it rubbed us the wrong way at some point, the start of the Christian journey is this. Do I acknowledge the authority of this God over my life? Does he have to convince me of everything? Does he have to sell me on everything? Or at some point, have I made a fundamental decision that if God says so, then that's how it goes? Is there any being of whom that is true in our lives? If it's not God, most likely it's just you. We baptize not just because it's beneficial or meaningful, but because it is the command of Jesus to us as the church. And so we do it in response to his authority, a way of saying at the very start of my Christian journey, I do this because you've told me to do it. And for the rest of my life, this will be my posture towards you. If you say so, so be it with me. So I want to ask you, have you been baptized in obedience to the command of Jesus? We have this idea in law, in the U.S. anyway, called common law marriage, where if you shack up long enough, the government goes, all right, yeah, I guess you're married. And so the laws and the benefits that accrue to married people just get, you sort of like slide down this grease hill into a marital status without the benefit of like a decision, a ceremony, anything like that. Just, I guess we're, that's, and for some people, that's their experience of being a Christian. I've never really obeyed Jesus in this. He told me that at the start of the journey, this event, this act of obedience would mark something important in my life. And I never did it. I, and that's why for many people, I think Christianity becomes a morality journey. An exercise in trying to be good people. Because it didn't begin as this celebration of a life-changing, life-giving encounter with the living Christ. It just became a, a, a belief system, a way of life. And it is so much more than that. If you haven't been baptized in obedience to the command of God, and yet you identify as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to ask you in faith and obedience to do something about that. And don't wait until next year's retreat. I know it's a really great time to celebrate, but we, we have friends of this church who have swimming pools. If the weather holds, 
We might do it outside. We might even, I even have a friend who's got a big house with an indoor pool. He says we could use it whenever we want. My daughter Jordan was baptized in that house. I want to open up the opportunity in the next month or two for you to do something about this. If you've never, if you realize, I love Jesus, I've been walking with him, but I never took care of this one simple act of obedience. Maybe it's like kind of embarrassing now because I've been in church for like 20 years, 30 years. I, I can't believe I never did this. I believe in faith that it will be a meaningful thing for you to physically embody and, and live out that experience as a pointer, a reminder to what really happened between you and Jesus. And I think having walked all these years with Jesus, the understanding, the depth of that impact will be even more meaningful for you. And if you are new to this faith and are ready to make that decision, don't wait and make baptism like a graduation cap and gown. It's what we do when we begin the journey. In faith, it's a first step, not the last step. So just bookmark that. If you want to take care of this, please direct message me one way or the other or reach out to Pastor Frank, Pastor Stan, Pastor Jeff. Just let one of the pastors know this is something I want to get taken care of. Really, Pastor Frank's your first go-to guy because he oversees baptisms for us. We'll put together something in the next month or two, in or out, but we want you to be able to do something about this. A disciple is someone who follows a master in order to become like them. And today, maybe we bristle at the word master, but maybe it's because of how we presented the gospel in America. We so strongly emphasize Jesus the Savior. And we emphasize, even overemphasize, personal salvation so that the entire death and resurrection of Jesus was all about so you could not go to hell and go to heaven. That was it. The whole thing he did was just for you. I would love to believe that, but it is not biblical at all to think that the only thought Jesus had on that cross was Dave Lee's got to make it. He did love me deeply. But here's what happens when we overemphasize personal salvation. We make it so that the living God of the universe stepped out of heaven and entered my story, did something really good, and then checked out, dropped the mic, and walked away. But in truth, our salvation brings us into his story, not just him into our story. And in his story, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is ruler of everything. He is undisputed God. In that story, we join his kingdom. He doesn't just rescue us from something. He invites us into something powerful and eternal, a privilege to be a part of. And in that kingdom, there is only room for one king. He's not looking for other kings to join him. He's looking for faithful subjects. So to be a disciple is to more than benefit from his saving work. It is to recognize and submit to his rightful authority over our lives as king, as lord. I grew up thinking that the last name of Jesus was Lord and Savior. Jesus, Lord and Savior. But really, the way we do it, we could take the Lord out and just make it Savior. It seems like in the American church, we want Jesus as Savior, but we postpone Jesus the Lord forever. Don't, don't try to crowd me out. I'm going to live life on my terms. Help me. That's all I ask of you. Help me. Stop crowding me. You can say that to other people all day long. That's cool. But you cannot say that to Jesus and call yourself a Christ follower. It's not possible. You can, but that's not Christianity. That's a new thing you made up that you're calling Christianity. But it's not biblical Christianity. Can I get an amen just to know that you aren't all leaving the church tomorrow? I mean, <laughs> there are certain moments when if you agree, you can just say amen. It encourages me. I think we find authority a hard word because we have not always met people in authority worth following. But if you behold Jesus, you will see in him goodness and worthiness so that it will not be an authority you chafe under or resent. I love the way Paul describes it in 2 Timothy 2.4. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. 
but rather tries to please his commanding officer. This is such a beautiful picture of the kind of relationship we're meant to have with the authority of Jesus. It's not this resentful, grudging submission to authority. It's this leader of mine, this commanding officer, is so worthy of my loyalty and honor that I try my best to please him. It's a joyful, willing submission to authority. And he is the only leader who will never disappoint you or invalidate your faith in him. Never ascribe that level of submission to any worldly leader, myself included. Please don't do that. He is the only one who will ever be worthy of this depth of submission. So disciples, is the authority of Jesus something you embrace joyfully Or is it something you resentfully chafe under? And the secondary question is, is it because you don't see Jesus as he truly is? I'm going to give you the last insight on baptism. And try to keep context in mind, this is all the beginning of the journey of being a disciple. Baptism as an act or an experience points us to these truths. That we are united with Jesus, joined as in marriage and in experience to his death and resurrection. And then it's a response to his authority because he's commanded it, and that for us as his followers is enough. The rest is gravy. I'm glad he explains himself. I'm glad we accrue benefit. But the fact that he just said so, that is enough. Here's the last insight. Baptism makes us part of God's family. It is, we're discovering that belonging may be the most important word for the human soul in this century. We're in such a fractured, disembodied, disconnected world. And everyone is yearning to belong somewhere, to someone. Colossians 2, 11 to 12 says this. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. So in the Old Testament, among the Israelites, circumcision was a mark of belonging to his people. So I know it's really gross, but that's one way a Jewish man could prove he was a Jewish man. He'd drop his trousers and go, see, this is the mark. Me and my family were one of you. There was this visible, physical mark that set them apart from other people. And what Paul is saying in Colossians is that when Jesus saved you, He did something profound. He did a circumcision of your heart. That's such a weird phrase. I can't believe that's in the Bible, but he, he circumcised your heart. He cut away the dead part of you that loves sin. I know that's a weird phrase today, but it describes accurately life apart from God as we love the things that make us feel pleasure, things that make us fuel the fires already burning inside of us. We love those things. And he cut that part of us out, discarded it. That doesn't mean we never love those things again, but the profound part of that work he has done, he cut away something in our nature that yearns for that and gave us new capacity to yearn for him instead. This is the new mark of belonging to the family of Jesus, the family of God. It's no longer circumcision of your privates. It is the circumcision of your heart. And what Paul says in Colossians is that circumcision of the heart is pointed to through our baptism. Our willingness to be joined to Christ in dying to the old self and being raised to life in the new self. So listen carefully here. When you become a Christian, you are born again. That was the word of Jesus in John 3.3. You are born another time. You're not renovated, you're not redefined, you're not remodeled. You're not new and improved. You are actually replaced, reborn. 
something that wasn't alive in you has been born. You are made totally new. I used to think that a caterpillar went into its cocoon, into what, what do they call that, a chrysalis? And that the caterpillar basically just grew wings. Because a butterfly, if you look at it, it kind of looks like a caterpillar with wings. So all my life as a kid, I thought that's what happens inside that chrysalis, is this caterpillar's... You know what happens, though scientists study this? The whole thing melts into a giant goop of DNA. The, the caterpillar doesn't just grow wings. It melts. It completely disassembles. It dies and is recreated. So its second life is as a butterfly. That's weird to me. I don't think you can say that caterpillar became that butterfly. I think that caterpillar was replaced by a butterfly that was still it, but not. I think that's a picture of what happens to us. I wasn't just made better, a new, like, I'm not Dave 2.0, the Christian. I used to be like this, but I'm, it doesn't mean I, my personality, my weirdnesses, all, Jeannie, you, you, I'm, as a Christian, I'm still the weird dude that you were smitten by so many years ago. I don't disappear. I'm still me. The same stuff is there. But there's something qualitatively new in me that wasn't there before Jesus. I was reborn as Dave Lee. That's the language Jesus uses, and you can't miss it. You're not just remodeled and renovated. You are reborn. And that birth language tells us that when that happens, we are born into a new family. We now acknowledge God as our Father. That is a privilege. He says in John 1, for all those who believed in Him, He gave the right, the privilege to become called the sons and daughters of God. It's not, an, it's not a, a thing that I claim for myself. It is a privilege given to be adopted, reborn into this new family of God. And if God is now our Father, what does that make us, guys? Because I know that sometimes in a family, siblings wish they didn't have their siblings. You didn't get to pick your siblings or your parents, but guess what? That's the family you got. And so you deal with it. You make the most of it. And when we mature and become healthy, we come to appreciate the family we were assigned. But we don't always as we're growing, right? And you think about the way you relate to your family, even in dysfunction, but especially in health. The way a family operates is a very good picture of the way he intends for us in the church to operate with each other. You and I aren't just people who go to the same church or share the same religion. To an outsider's eyes, that's all that unites us. Oh yeah, all those people go to Harvest and those people go to that other rival gang called ICC and then those other people go to another. And at the softball tournament, it really feels like a bunch of gangs coming out, <laughs> check each other out, size each other up, and go, we're better than them. You know, it feels like that a little bit, right? But the truth is, in Christ, we all have one Father. And by consequence of His blood that binds us together, we are now family to each other. You and I are not just friends or church members, adherents of the same belief system. We are brothers and sisters to each other. That is an irreversible, permanent status ascribed to us towards one another. That has to frame the way we relate to each other. We cannot relate to each other the way everyone else in society relates to each other. Cancel culture doesn't have a place in the church. I wish it did. I know you wish it did. There are people who cost us so much, we sometimes wish I could just go, you're not my brother anymore. You're someone else's, I don't know what. But I want to walk away, you're too much. Sometimes you may have felt that way about me. We all get there in family. That's how family is. And yet, we accept at some deep level, family is still irreversible. It's permanent. You are my family whether you deserve to be my family or not. You're my family whether I like to be in this family or not. That is not something I picked. It is something given to me. That is who you and I are to each other. And what that means is if we have beef with each other, 
We can explain all day long the mechanics of how to resolve conflict, but what I'm explaining now is why we resolve it. Because you can't just learn the techniques, you have to be convinced of this. You and I don't have the privilege or the option to cancel each other. To just go, alright, I'm just going to walk away. That is simply not an option. And if we exercise it, something profound in us will die. You and I are more than friends. Look around at the people sitting next to you. Just do it, honestly. Just look around. Apart from the Christian faith or this church, I don't know, and maybe the people right by you, yeah, I, yeah, I know these guys, but how, do you think this same group of humans would have assembled for any other reason? And when you look around this room, what do you see? See, with fleshly eyes, you will see the people, the humans who happen to go to the same church as you for this season of your life. And if I really get sick of it, I'm going to go to another place. I get that 100%. I understand the psychology of that. But here's the truth. It's not that easy to walk away from each other because we are made family in Christ. That is one of the things baptism acknowledges. You break out of the surface of that water. You're not just raised from death. You are reborn. Isn't it interesting that so much water gushing out around us is a part of human birth? I did not know that until Noah was born. And I was like, oh, oh, no, no, that's, it was a little too much for me. But that's the truth of it. It's a symbol of rebirth as well. And in that rebirth, I don't just rejoin my family. I'm given a new one. You are my family. And I'm your family. And the weird people sitting in this room with you, we're not just churchmates. We are brothers and sisters. That's how deeply bound we are. And you may not feel that in your gut, but I'm simply telling you in faith that is true right now, regardless of our feelings. And it has to shape the way we deal with each other. It's really warm in this room, so I'm going to draw to a close. Are you guys pretty warm here? Nice and cozy. I wore long pants thinking it was going to be cool today. We have a tendency to think of baptism as a one-and-done event, something important, but something in our history. Just like a wedding. Yeah, we got married, so what? Well, I'm still married, that's what. That one-and-done event points forward to a daily reality I live in, and that's what baptism is for each of us. To follow Jesus as a disciple is to live in the reality of what baptism represents. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, then know this, you are joined to him the way a husband and wife are joined to each other. You don't just walk with him, like next to him, you are joined to him in the most profound way. And in that union, something of your old self died. And there is this newness bursting out of you. That newness, that river of living water, is what fuels every good thing in your life. So one consequence of that is to stop trying to be a good person on your own strength. And harness this powerful river of life gushing out of you because of what Jesus has done. It also points to submitting ourselves to his authority. And that begins with looking at him closely and saying, are you good and are you worthy to be followed? If you see Jesus that way, it will be your joyful privilege to spend the rest of your life pleasing him and not yourself. And lastly, baptism points to embracing our place of belonging in the family of God. You can replace 150 friendish people with 150 siblings and a new father if you acknowledge what Jesus has done for you. And that is what we're meant to be to each other. That means we will never walk away from each other and say, I'm done with you, but we will work out our junk because the bond between us is sacred. It transcends where we go to church. You and I are going to share eternity. How awkward if we canceled each other and then have to be next door neighbors for eternity. Let's not live that way with each other. Let's never attempt 
this false thing called solitary Lone Ranger Christianity. The Bible describes nothing of the sort. There is no valid form of Christianity that is one person walking with God. It has always been a communal faith. Always. From the very start. Our God himself exists in community. There is no such thing as me and Jesus and that's enough. That is not Christianity described in scripture. It is first and most importantly you and Jesus. But it will never be that for long. Because you and Jesus attaches you to a kingdom full of people who have become your blood, your flesh, your brother and your sister. So everything that we do in Christ, we do together. That is what we celebrate in baptism. If you have been baptized, I hope that this has given you fresh appreciation for what happened that day that you got dunked or sprinkled or poured on. And if that's never happened, but you're ready to follow Jesus, I'm going to ask you to reach out. Tell Pastor Frank, I want to do something about this. If you happen to be eating lunch with someone else who's a leader in the church, you could tell them. They'll pass the word on. But we want to offer a couple times before next summer for you to get that done, to have that meaningful, powerful experience. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. And as they're getting ready to lead us in the last couple songs, let me invite you just a moment to pause and think about what your relationship with Jesus looks like today. Maybe you're like me. I have very clear memories of what it used to look like, how I used to feel. But where are you with him right now? Because every Sunday and every day, really, is an invitation to renew that relationship. Celebrate all over again. I still want this to be who I am. I still want to follow him. Being a disciple is not set it and forget it. It is every day. I choose to follow. So I invite you to do that right now. Pause and respond to him. And then we'll close in a couple songs. And I'll come back and give a blessing of prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.